0: SECTION THREE OF TALES OF THE JAZZ AGE BY F. SCOTT FITZGERALD. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY DON W. JENKINS Day, PART 1 There had been a war fought, and won, and the great city of the conquering people was crossed with triumphal arches, and vivid with thrown flowers of white, red, and rose. All through the long spring days the returning soldiers marched up the chief highway behind the strump of drums and the joyous resonant wind of the brasses, while merchants and clerks left their bickerings and figurings, and, crowding to the windows, turned their white bunched faces gravely upon the passing battalions. Never had there been such splendor in the great city, for the victorious war had brought plenty in its train and the merchants had flocked thither from the south and west with their households to taste of all the luscious feasts and witness the lavish entertainments prepared and to buy for their women furs against the next winter and bags of golden mesh and bari-colored slippers of silk and silver and rose satin and cloth of gold so gaily and noisily were the peace and prosperity impending hymned by the scribes and poets of the conquering people that more and more spenders had gathered from the provinces to drink the wine of excitement and faster and faster did the merchants dispose of their trinkets and slippers until they sent up a mighty cry for more trinkets and more slippers in order that they might give in barter what was demanded of them some even of them flung up their hands helplessly shouting alas i have no more slippers and alas i have no more trinkets may heaven help me for i know not what i shall do but no one listened to their great outcry for the throngs were far too busy day by day the foot soldiers trod jauntily the highway and all exulted because the young men returning were pure and brave sound of tooth and pink of cheek and the young women of the land were virgins and comely both of face and figure so during all this time there were many adventures that happened in the great city and of these several or perhaps one are here set down one at nine o'clock in the morning of the first of may nineteen nineteen a young man spoke to the room clerk at the biltmore hotel asking if mr philip dean were registered there and if so could he be connected with mr dean's rooms the inquirer was dressed in a well-cut shabby suit he was small slender and darkly handsome his eyes were framed above with unusually long eyelashes and below with the blue semicircle of ill-health this latter effect heightened by an unnatural glow which coloured his face like a low incessant fever mr Deane was staying there the young man was directed to a telephone at the side after a second his connection was made a sleepy voice halloed from somewhere above mr dean this very eagerly it's gordon phil it's gordon sterrett i'm downstairs i heard you were in new york and i had a hunch you'd be here the sleepy voice became gradually enthusiastic well how was gordy old boy well he certainly was surprised and tickled would gordy come right up for pete's sake a few minutes later philip dean dressed in blue silk pajamas opened his door and the two young men greeted each other with a half embarrassed exuberance They were both about twenty-four, Yale graduates of the same year before the war, but there the resemblance stopped abruptly. Dean was blonde, ruddy, and rugged under his thin pajamas. Everything about him radiated fitness and bodily comfort. He smiled frequently, showing large and prominent teeth. "'I was going to look you up,' he cried enthusiastically. "'I'm taking a couple of weeks off. If you'll sit down a sec, I'll be right with you. Going to take a shower.' as he vanished into the bathroom his visitor's dark eyes roved nervously around the room resting for a moment on a great english travelling bag in the corner and on a family of thick silk shirts littered on the chairs amid impressive neckties and soft woolen socks gordon rose and picking up one of the shirts gave it a minute examination it was of very heavy silk yellow with a pale blue stripe and there were nearly a dozen of them He stared involuntarily at his own shirt-cuffs. They were ragged and linty at the edges, and soiled to a faint gray. Dropping the silk shirt, he held his coat-sleeves down, and worked the frayed shirt-cuffs up, till they were out of sight. Then he went to the mirror and looked at himself with listless, unhappy interest. His tie of former glory was faded and thumb-creased. It served no longer to hide the jagged buttonholes of his collar. He thought, quite without amusement, that only three years before he had received a scattering vote in the senior elections at college for being the best-dressed man in his class. Dean emerged from the bathroom, polishing his body. "'Saw an old friend of yours last night,' he remarked. "Passed her in the lobby and couldn't think of her name to save my neck. That girl you brought up to New Haven senior year.' Gordon started. "'Edith Braddon? That whom you mean?' "'That's the one. Damn good-looking. She's still sort of a pretty doll. You know what I mean. As if you touched her, she'd smear.' He surveyed his shining self complacently in the mirror, smiled faintly, exposing a section of teeth. "'She must be twenty-three, anyway,' he continued. Twenty two last month,' said Gordon absently. "'What? Oh, last month. Well, I imagine she's down for the Gamma Psi dance. Did you know we're having a Yale Gamma Psi dance tonight at Delmonico's?' you better come up gordy half of new haven'll probably be there i can get you an invitation draping himself reluctantly in fresh underwear dean lit a cigarette and sat down by the open window inspecting his calves and knees under the morning sunshine which poured into the room sit down gordy he suggested and tell me all about what you've been doing and what you're doing now and everything gordon collapsed unexpectedly upon the bed lay there inert and spiritless His mouth, which habitually dropped a little open when his face was in repose, became suddenly helpless and pathetic. "'What's the matter?' asked Dean quickly. "'Oh, God! "'What's the matter?' "'Every goddamn thing in the world,' he said miserably. "'I've absolutely gone to pieces, Phil. I'm all in.' "'Huh?' "'I'm all in,' his voice was shaking. Dean scrutinized him more closely with appraising blue eyes. "'You certainly look all shot.' i am i've made a hell of a mess of everything he paused i'd better start at the beginning or will it bore you not at all go on there was however a hesitant note in dean's voice this trip east had been planned for a holiday to find gordon stirrett in trouble exasperated him a little go on he repeated and then added half under his breath get it over with well began gordon unsteadily i got back from france in february went home to harrisburg for a month then came down to new york to get a job i got one with an export company they fired me yesterday fired you i'm coming to that phil i want to tell you frankly you're about the only man i can turn to in a matter like this you won't mind if i just tell you frankly will you phil dean stiffened a bit more the pats he was bestowing on his knees grew perfunctory He felt vaguely that he was being unfairly saddled with responsibility. He was not even sure he wanted to be told. Though never surprised at finding Gordon Sterrett in mild difficulty, there was something in this present misery that repelled him and hardened him, even though it excited his curiosity. "'Go on. It's a girl.' "'Hmm,' Dane resolved that nothing was going to spoil this trip. If Gordon was going to be depressing, then he'd have to see less of Gordon.' her name is jewel hudson went on the distressed voice from the bed she used to be pure i guess up to about a year ago lived here in new york poor family her people are dead now and she lives with an old aunt you see it was just about the time i met her that everybody began to come back from france in droves and all i did was to welcome the newly arrived and go on parties with them that's the way it started phil just from being glad to see everybody and having them glad to see me you ought to have had more sense i know gordon paused and then continued listlessly i'm on my own now you know and phil i can't stand being poor then came this darn girl she sort of fell in love with me for a while and though i never intended to get so involved i'd always seem to run into her somewhere you can imagine the sort of work i was doing for these exporting people of course i always intended to draw do illustrating for magazines "'There's a pile of money in it.' "'Why didn't you? "'You've got to buckle down if you want to make good,' suggested Dean with cold formalism. "'I tried a little, but my stuff's crude. "'I've got talent, Phil. "'I can draw, but I just don't know how. "'I ought to go to art school, and I can't afford it. "'Well, things came to a crisis about a week ago. "'Just as I was down to about my last dollar, "'this girl began bothering me. "'She wants some money. "'Claims she can make trouble for me if she doesn't get it.' "'Can she?' i'm afraid she can that's one reason i lost my job she kept calling up the office all the time and that was sort of the last straw down there she's got a letter all written to send to my family oh she's got me all right i've got to have some money for her there was an awkward pause gordon lay very still his hands clenched by his side i'm all in he continued his voice trembling i'm half crazy phil if i hadn't known you were coming east i think i'd have killed myself i want you to lend me three hundred dollars dean's hands which had been patting his bare ankles were suddenly quiet and the curious uncertain playing between the two became taut and strained after a second gordon continued i bled the family until i'm ashamed to ask for another nickel still dean made no answer jewel says she's got to have two hundred dollars tell her where she can go yes that sounds easy but she's got a couple of drunken letters i wrote her unfortunately she's not at all the flabby sort of person you'd expect dean made an expression of distaste i can't stand that sort of woman you ought to have kept away i know admitted gordon wearily you've got to look at things as they are if you haven't got money you've got to work and stay away from women that's easy for you to say began gordon his eyes narrowing you've got all the money in the world i most certainly have not "'My family keep darn close tab on what I spend. "'Just because I have a little leeway, "'I have to be extra careful not to abuse it.' "'He raised the blind and let in a further flood of sunshine. "'I'm no prig, Lord knows,' he went on deliberately. "'I like pleasure, and I like a lot of it on a vacation like this, "'but you're—you're an awful shape. "'I never heard you talk just this way before. "'You seem to be sort of bankrupt, morally as well as financially.' "'Don't they usually go together?' Dean shook his head impatiently. There's a regular aura about you that I don't understand. It's a sort of evil. It's an air of worry and poverty and sleepless nights, said Gordon, rather defiantly. I don't know. Oh, I admit I'm depressing. I depress myself. But, my God, Phil, a week's rest and a new suit and some ready money, and I'd be like, like I was. Phil, I can draw like a streak, and you know it but half the time i haven't had the money to buy decent drawing materials and i can't draw when i'm tired and discouraged and all in with a little ready money i can take a few weeks off and get started how do i know you wouldn't use it on some other woman why rub it in said gordon quietly i'm not rubbing it in i hate to see you this way will you lend me the money phil i can't decide right off that's a lot of money and it'll be darn inconvenient for me it'll be hell for me if you can't i know i'm whining and it's all my own fault but that doesn't change it when could you pay it back this was encouraging gordon considered it was probably wisest to be frank of course i could promise to send it back next month but i'd better say three months just as soon as i start to sell drawings how do i know you'll sell any drawings a new hardness in dean's voice sent a faint chill of doubt over gordon was it possible that he wouldn't get the money i supposed you had a little confidence in me i did have but when i see you like this i begin to wonder do you suppose if i wasn't at the end of my rope i'd come to you like this do you think i'm enjoying it he broke off and bit his lip feeling that he had better subdue the rising anger in his voice after all he was the suppliant you seem to manage it pretty easily said dean angrily you put me in the position where if i don't lend it to you i'm a sucker oh yes you do and let me tell you it's no easy thing for me to get hold of three hundred dollars my income isn't so big but that a slice like that won't play the deuce with it he left his chair and began to dress choosing his clothes carefully gordon stretched out his arms and clenched the edges of the bed fighting back a desire to cry out His head was splitting and whirring, his mouth was dry and bitter, and he could feel the fever in his blood resolving itself into innumerable, regular counts like a slow dripping from a roof. Dean tied his tie precisely, brushed his eyebrows, and removed a piece of tobacco from his teeth with solemnity. Next he filled his cigarette case, tossed the empty box thoughtfully into the waste-basket, and settled the case in his vest-pocket. "'Had breakfast?' he demanded. "'No.' i don't eat it any more well we'll go out and have some we'll decide about that money later i'm sick of the subject i came east to have a good time let's go over to the yale club he continued moodily and then added with an implied reproof you've given up your job you've got nothing else to do i'd have a lot to do if i had a little money said gordon pointedly oh for heaven's sake drop the subject for a while no point in glooming on my whole trip here here's some money He took a five-dollar bill from his wallet and tossed it over to Gordon, who folded it carefully and put it in his pocket. There was an added spot of color in his cheeks, an added glow that was not fever. For an instant before they turned to go out their eyes met, and in that instant each found something that made him lower his own glance quickly, for in that instant they quite suddenly and definitely hated each other. 2 the wealthy happy sun glittered in transient gold through the thick windows of the smart shops lighting upon mesh-bags and purses and strings of pearls in gray velvet cases upon gaudy feather fans of many colors upon the laces and silks of expensive dresses upon the bad paintings and the fine period furniture in the elaborate showrooms of interior decorators working-girls in pairs and groups and swarms loitered by these windows choosing their future boudoirs from some resplendent display which included even a man's silk pajamas laid domestically across the bed they stood in front of the jewelry stores and picked out their engagement rings and their wedding rings and their platinum wristwatches, and then drifted on to inspect the feather fans and opera cloaks meanwhile digesting the sandwiches and sundays they had eaten for lunch all through the crowd there were men in uniform, sailors from the great fleet anchored in the Hudson, soldiers with divisional insignia from Massachusetts to California, wanting fearfully to be noticed, and finding the great city thoroughly fed up with soldiers, unless they were nicely massed into pretty formations, and uncomfortable under the weight of a pack and rifle. Through this medley Dean and Gordon wandered. The former interested, made alert by the display of humanity at its frothiest and gaudiest, the latter reminded of how often he had been one of the crowd tired casually fed overworked and dissipated to dean the struggle was significant young cheerful to gordon it was dismal meaningless endless in the yale club they met a group of their former classmates who greeted the visiting dean vociferously sitting in a semicircle of lounges and great chairs they had a highball all around gordon found the conversation tiresome and interminable they lunched together en masse, warmed with liquor as the afternoon began. They were all going to the Gamma Psi dance that night. It promised to be the best party since the war. Edith Braden's coming, said someone to Gordon. Didn't she used to be an old flame of yours? Aren't you both from Harrisburg? Yes, he tried to change the subject. I see her brother occasionally. He's sort of a socialistic nut, runs a paper or something here in New York. "'Not like his gay sister, eh?' continued the eager informant. "'Well, she's coming to-night with a junior named Peter Himmel.' Gordon was to meet Jewel Hudson at eight o'clock. He had promised to have some money for her. Several times he glanced nervously at his wristwatch. At four, to his relief, Dean rose and announced that he was going over to Rivers Brothers to buy some collars and ties. But as they left the club, another of the party joined them, to Gordon's great dismay dean was in a jovial mood now happy expectant of the evening's party faintly hilarious over in rivers he chose a dozen neckties selecting each one after long consultations with the other man did he think narrow ties were coming back and wasn't it a shame that rivers couldn't get any more welsh margotson collars there never was a collar like the covington gordon was in something of a panic he wanted the money immediately and he was now inspired also with a vague idea of attending the gamasai dance he wanted to see edith edith whom he hadn't met since one romantic night at the harrisburg country club just before he went to france the affair had died drowned in the turmoil of the war and quite forgotten in the arabesque of these three months but a picture of her poignant debonair immersed in her own inconsequential chatter recurred to him unexpectedly and brought a hundred memories with it it was edith's face that he had cherished through college with a sort of detached yet affectionate admiration he had loved to draw her around his room had been a dozen sketches of her playing golf swimming he could draw her pert arresting profile with his eyes shut they left rivers at five-thirty and parsed for a moment on the sidewalk well said dean genially i'm all set now i think i'll go back to the hotel and get a shave haircut and massage good enough said the other man i think i'll join you gordon wondered if he was to be beaten after all with difficulty he restrained himself from turning to the man and snarling out go on away damn you in despair he suspected that perhaps dean had spoken to him was keeping him along in order to avoid a dispute about the money they went into the biltmore a built more alive with girls mostly from the west and south the stellar debutantes of many cities gathered for the dance of a famous fraternity of a famous university but to gordon they were faces in a dream he gathered together his forces for a last appeal was about to come out with he knew not what when dean suddenly excused himself to the other man and taking gordon's arm led him aside gordy he said quickly I've thought the whole thing over carefully, and I've decided that I can't lend you that money. I'd like to oblige you, but I don't feel I ought to. It had put a crimp in me for a month. Gordon watched him dully, wondered why he had never before noticed how much those upper teeth projected. I'm mighty sorry, Gordon, continued Dean, but that's the way it is. He took out his wallet and deliberately counted out seventy-five dollars in bills. Here, he said, holding them out, here's seventy-five that makes eighty altogether that's all the actual cash i have with me besides what i'll actually spend on the trip gordon raised his clenched hand automatically opened it as though it were a tongs he was holding and clenched it again on the money i'll see you at the dance continued dean i've got to get along to the barber shop so long said gordon in a strained and husky voice so long dean began to smile but he seemed to change his mind he nodded briskly and disappeared but gordon stood there his handsome face awry with distress the roll of bills clenched tightly in his hand then blinded by sudden tears he stumbled clumsily down the biltmore steps three about nine o'clock of the same night two human beings came out of a cheap restaurant in sixth avenue they were ugly ill-nourished devoid of all except the very lowest form of intelligence and without even that animal exuberance that in itself brings color into life. They were lately vermin-ridden, cold, and hungry in a dirty town of a strange land. They were poor, friendless, tossed as driftwood from their births. They would be tossed as driftwood to their deaths. They were dressed in the uniform of the United States Army, and on the shoulder of each was the insignia of a drafted division from New Jersey, landed three days before. The taller of the two was named Carol Key, a name hinting that in his veins, however thinly diluted by generations of degeneration, ran blood of some potentiality. But one could stare endlessly at the long, chinless face, the dull, watery eyes, and high cheekbones, without finding suggestion of either ancestral worth or native resourcefulness. His companion was swart and bandy-legged, with rat eyes and a much-broken, hooked nose. His defiant air was obviously a pretense, a weapon of protection borrowed from that world of snarl and snap, of physical bluff and physical menace in which he had always lived. His name was Gus Rose. Leaving the café, they sauntered down 6th Avenue, wielding toothpicks with great gusto and complete detachment. "'Where to?' asked Rose, in a tone which implied that he would not be surprised if Key suggested the South Sea Islands. "'What do you say? We see if we can get a hold of some liquor.' Prohibition was not yet. The ginger in the suggestion was caused by the law forbidding the selling of liquor to soldiers. Rose agreed enthusiastically. "'I got an idea,' continued Key, after a moment's thought. "'I got a brother somewhere.' "'In New York?' "'Yeah, he's an old fellow.' He meant that he was an elder brother. "'He's a waiter in a hash-joint.' maybe he can get us some i'll say he can believe me i'm going to get this darn uniform off me to never get me in it again neither i'm going to get me some regular clothes say maybe i'm not as their combined finances were something less than five dollars this intention can be taken largely as a pleasant game of words harmless and consoling it seemed to please both of them however for they reinforced it with chuckling and mention of personages high in biblical circles adding such further emphasis as oh boy you know and i'll say so repeated many times over the entire mental pabulum of these two men consisted of an offended nasal comment extended through the years upon the institution army business or poorhouse which kept them alive and toward their immediate superior in that institution until that very morning the institution had been the government and the immediate superior had been the cap'en from these two they had glided out and were now in the vaguely uncomfortable state before they should adopt their next bondage they were uncertain resentful and somewhat ill at ease this they hid by pretending an elaborate relief at being out of the army and by assuring each other that military discipline should never again rule their stubborn liberty-loving wills yet as a matter of fact they would have felt more at home in a prison than in this new-found and unquestionable freedom suddenly key increased his gait rose looking up and following his glance discovered a crowd that was collecting fifty yards down the street key chuckled and began to run in the direction of the crowd rose thereupon also chuckled and his short bandy legs twinkled beside the long awkward strides of his companion reaching the outskirts of the crowd they immediately became an indistinguishable part of it it was composed of ragged civilians somewhat the worse for liquor and of soldiers representing many divisions and many stages of sobriety all clustered around a gesticulating little jew with long black whiskers who was waving his arms and delivering an excited but succinct harangue Key and rose having wedged themselves into the approximate parquet scrutinized him with acute suspicion as his words penetrated their common consciousness what have you got out of the war he was crying fiercely look around you look around you are you rich have you got a lot of money offered you no you're lucky if you're alive and got both your legs you're lucky if you came back and find your wife ain't gone off with some other fellow that had the money to buy himself out of the war that's when you're lucky who got anything out of it except j p morgan and john d rockefeller at this point the little jew's oration was interrupted by the hostile impact of a fist upon the point of his bearded chin and he toppled backward to a sprawl on the pavement god damn bolshevik cried the big soldier blacksmith who had delivered the blow there was a rumble of approval the crowd closed in nearer the jew staggered to his feet and immediately went down again before a half a dozen reaching in fists this time he stayed down breathing heavily blood oozing from his lip where it was cut within and without there was a riot of voices and in a minute rose and key found themselves flowing with the jumbled crowd down sixth avenue under the leadership of a thin civilian in a slouch hat and the brawny soldier who had summarily ended the oration the crowd had marvellously swollen to formidable proportions and a stream of more non-committal citizens followed it along the sidewalks lending their moral support by intermittent huzzas where are we going yelled key to the man next to him his neighbor pointed up to the leader in the slouch hat that guy knows where there's a lot of em we're going to show em we're going to show em whispered key delightedly to rose who repeated the phrase rapturously to a man on the other side down sixth avenue swept the procession joined here and there by soldiers and marines and now and then by civilians who came up with the inevitable cry that they were just out of the army themselves as if presenting it as a card of admission to a newly formed sporting and amusement club then the procession swerved down across street and headed for fifth avenue and the word filtered here and there that they were bound for a red meeting at tolliver hall where is it the question went up the line and a moment later the answer floated back tolliver hall was down on tenth street there was a bunch of other soldiers who was going to break it up and was down there now but tenth street had a far-away sound and at the word a general groan went up and a score of the procession dropped out among these were rose and key who slowed down to a saunter and let the more enthusiastic sweep on by i'd rather get some liquor said key as they halted and made their way to the sidewalk amid cries of "Shell hole and quitters does your brother work around here asked rose assuming the air of one passing from the superficial to the eternal he oughta replied key i ain't seen him for a couple of years i've been out to pennsylvania since maybe he don't work at night anyhow it's right along here he can get us some all right if he ain't gone They found the place, after a few minutes, patrol of the street. A shoddy tablecloth restaurant between Fifth Avenue and Broadway. Here Key went inside to inquire for his brother George, while Rose waited on the sidewalk. "'He ain't here no more,' said Key, emerging. "'He's a waiter up to Delmonico's.' Rose nodded wisely as if he'd expected as much. One should not be surprised at a capable man changing jobs occasionally. He knew a waiter once— There ensued a long conversation, as they waited, as to whether waiters made more in actual wages than in tips. It was decided that it depended on the social tone of the joint wherein the waiter labored. After having given each other vivid pictures of millionaires dining at Delmonico's and throwing away fifty-dollar bills after their first quart of champagne, both men thought privately of becoming waiters. In fact, Keyes' narrow brow was secreting a resolution to ask his brother to get him a job a waiter can drink up all the champagne those fellows leave in bottles suggested rose with some relish and then added as an afterthought oh boy by the time they reached delmonico's it was half past ten and they were surprised to see a stream of taxis driving up to the door one after the other and emitting marvellous hatless young ladies each one attended by a stiff young gentleman in evening clothes it's a party said rose with some awe maybe we better not go in he'll be busy no he won't he'll be all right after some hesitation they entered what appeared to them to be the least elaborate door and indecision falling upon them immediately stationed themselves nervously in an inconspicuous corner of the small dining-room in which they found themselves they took off their caps and held them in their hands a cloud of gloom fell upon them and both started when a door at one end of the room crashed open emitting a comet-like waiter who streaked across the floor and vanished through another door on the other side there had been three of these lightning passages before the seekers mustered the acumen to hail a waiter he turned looked at them suspiciously and then approached with soft cat-like steps as if prepared at any moment to turn and flee say began key say do you know my brother he's a waiter here his name is key annotated rose yes the waiter knew key he was upstairs he thought there was a big dance going on in the main ballroom he'd tell him ten minutes later george key appeared and greeted his brother with the utmost suspicion his first and most natural thought being that he was going to be asked for money george was tall and weak-chinned but there his resemblance to his brother ceased the waiter's eyes were not dull they were alert and twinkling and his manner was suave indoor and faintly superior they exchanged formalities george was married and had three children he seemed fairly interested but not impressed by the news that carroll had been abroad in the army this disappointed carroll george said the younger brother these amenities having been disposed of we want to get some booze and they won't sell us none can you get us some george considered sure maybe i can it may be half an hour though all right agreed carol we'll wait at this rose started to sit down in a convenient chair but was haled to his feet by the indignant george hey watch out you can't sit down there this room's all set for a twelve o'clock banquet i ain't going to hurt it said rose resentfully i been through the delow never mind said george sternly if the head waiter seen me here talking he'd romp all over me oh the mention of the head waiter was full explanation to the other two they fingered their overseas caps nervously and waited for a suggestion i tell you said george after a pause i got a place you can wait you just come here with me they followed him out the far door through a deserted pantry and up a pair of dark winding stairs emerging finally into a small room chiefly furnished by piles of pails and stacks of scrubbing-brushes, and illuminated by a single dim electric light. There he left them, after soliciting two dollars and agreeing to return in half an hour with a quart of whiskey. "'George is making money, I bet,' said Key gloomily, as he seated himself on an inverted pail. "'I bet he's making fifty dollars a week,' Rose nodded his head and spat i bet he is too what do you say the dance was of a lot of college fellows yale college they both nodded solemnly at each other wonder where that crowd of soldiers is now i don't know it's too damn long walk for me me too you don't catch me walking that far ten minutes later restlessness seized them i'm going to see what's out there said rose stepping cautiously toward the other door IT WAS A SWINGING DOOR OF GREEN BAYS, AND HE PUSHED IT OPEN A CAUTIOUS INCH. SEE ANYTHING? FOR ANSWER ROSE DREW IN HIS BREATH SHARPLY. DOG HERE'S SOME LIQUOR, I'LL SAY. LIQUOR? KEY JOINED ROSE AT THE DOOR AND LOOKED eagerly. I'LL TELL THE WORLD THAT'S LIQUOR, HE SAID AFTER A MOMENT OF CONCENTRATED GAZING. IT WAS A ROOM ABOUT TWICE AS LARGE AS THE ONE THEY WERE IN, AND IN IT WAS PREPARED A RADIANT FEAST OF SPIRITS there were long walls of alternating bottles set along two white-covered tables whisky gin brandy french and italian vermouths and orange juice not to mention an array of siphons and two great empty punch bowls the room was as yet uninhabited it's for this dance they're just starting whispered Key. hear the violins playin say boy i wouldn't mind having a dance they closed the door softly and exchanged a glance of mutual comprehension there was no need of feeling each other out i'd like to get my hands in a couple of those bottles said rose emphatically me too do you suppose we'd get sane key considered maybe we'd better wait till they start drinking em they got em all laid out now and they know how many of em there are they debated this point for several minutes rose was all for getting his hands on a bottle now and tucking it under his coat before anyone came into the room key however advocated caution he was afraid he might get his brother in trouble if they waited till some of the bottles were opened it'd be all right to take one and everybody'd think it was one of the college fellows while they were still engaged in argument george key hurried through the room and barely grunting at them disappeared by way of the green baize door a minute later they heard several corks pop and then the sound of cracking ice and splashing liquid George was mixing the punch the soldiers exchanged delighted grins oh boy whispered Rose George reappeared just keep low boys he said quickly I'll have your stuff for you in five minutes he disappeared through the door by which he had come as soon as his footsteps receded down the stairs Rose after a cautious look darted into the room of delights and reappeared with a bottle in his hand here's what i say he said as they sat radiantly digesting their first drink we'll wait till he comes up and then we'll ask him if we can't just stay here and drink what he brings us see we'll tell him we haven't got any place to drink it see then we can sneak in there whenever there ain't anybody in that there room and tuck a bottle under our coats we'll have enough to last us a couple of days see Sure," agreed Key oh boy and if we want to we can sell it to soldiers any time we want to they were silent for a moment thinking rosily of this idea then key reached up and unhooked the collar of his o d coat it's hot in here ain't it rose agreed earnestly hot as hell four she was still quite angry when she came out of the dressing-room and crossed the intervening parlor of politeness that opened on to the hall angry not so much at the actual happening which was, after all, the merest commonplace of her social existence, but because it had occurred on this particular night. She had no quarrel with herself. She had acted with the correct mixture of dignity and reticent pity which she always employed. She had succinctly and deftly snubbed him. It had happened when their taxi was leaving the Biltmore, hadn't gone half a block. He had lifted his right arm awkwardly, she was on his right side and attempted to settle it snugly around the crimson fur-trimmed opera cloak she wore this in itself had been a mistake it was inevitably more graceful for a young man attempting to embrace a young woman of whose acquiescence he was not certain to first put his far arm around her it avoided that awkward movement of raising the near arm his second faux pas was unconscious she had spent the afternoon at the hairdresser's the idea of any calamity overtaking her hair was extremely repugnant yet as peter made his unfortunate attempt the point of his elbow had just faintly brushed it that was his second faux pas two were quite enough he had begun to murmur at the first murmur she had decided that he was nothing but a college boy edith was twenty-two and anyhow this dance first of its kind since the war was reminding her with the accelerating rhythm of its associations of something else of another dance and another man-a man for whom her feelings had been little more than a sad-eyed adolescent mooniness edith Braden was falling in love with her recollection of gordon so she came out of the dressing-room at delmonico's and stood for a second in the doorway looking over the shoulders of a black dress in front of her at the groups of yale men who flitted like dignified black moths around the head of the stairs from the room she had left drifted out the heavy fragrance left by the passage to and fro of many scented young beauties rich perfumes and the fragile memory laden dust of fragrant powders this odor drifting out acquired the tang of cigarette smoke in the hall and then settled sensuously down the stairs and permeated the ballroom where the gamma Psi dance was to be held it was an odor she knew well exciting stimulating restlessly sweet the odor of a fashionable dance she thought of her own appearance her bare arms and shoulders were powdered to a creamy white she knew they looked very soft and would gleam like milk against the black backs that were to silhouette them tonight. the hair-dressing had been a success her reddish mass of hair was piled and crushed and creased to an arrogant marvel of mobile curves her lips were finely made of deep carmine the irises of her eyes were delicate breakable blue like china eyes she was a complete infinitely delicate quite perfect thing of beauty flowing in an even line from a complex coiffure to two small, slim feet. She thought of what she would say to-night at this revel, faintly prestiged already by the sounds of high and low laughter and slippered footsteps, and movements of couples up and down the stairs. She would talk the language she had talked for many years, her line, made up of the current expressions, bits of journalese, and college slang strung together into an intrinsic whole, carelessly, faintly provocative, delicately sentimental. She stalled faintly as she heard a girl sitting on the stairs next to her say, "'You don't know the half of it, dearie!' As she smiled her anger melted for a moment, and closing her eyes she drew a deep breath of pleasure. She dropped her arms to her side until they were faintly touching the sleek sheath that covered and suggested her figure. She had never felt her own softness so much nor so enjoyed the whiteness of her own arms.' i smell sweet she said to herself simply and then came another thought i'm made for love she liked the sound of this and thought it again then in inevitable succession came her new-born riot of dreams about gordon the twist of her imagination which two months before had disclosed to her her unguessed desire to see him again seemed now to have been leading up to this dance this hour for all her sleek beauty edith was a grave slow-thinking girl There was a streak in her of that same desire to ponder and of that adolescent idealism that had turned her brother socialist and pacifist. Henry Braden had left Cornell, where he had been an instructor in economies, and had come to New York to pour the latest cures for incurable evils into the columns of a radical weekly newspaper. Edith, less fatuously, would have been content to cure Gordon Sterrett. There was a quality of weakness in Gordon that she wanted to take care of, There was a helplessness in him that she wanted to protect, and she wanted someone she had known a long while, someone who had loved her a long while. She was a little tired. She wanted to get married. Out of a pile of letters, half a dozen pictures, and as many memories, and this weariness, she had decided that next time she saw Gordon their relations were going to be changed. She would say something that would change them. There was this evening— THIS WAS HER EVENING. ALL EVENINGS WERE HER EVENINGS. THEN HER THOUGHTS WERE INTERRUPTED BY A SOLEMN UNDERGRADUATE WITH A HURT LOOK AND AN AIR OF STRAINED FORMALITY WHO PRESENTED HIMSELF BEFORE HER AND BOWED UNUSUALLY LOW. IT WAS THE MAN SHE HAD COME WITH, PETER HIMMEL. HE WAS TALL AND HUMOROUS, WITH HORN-RIMMED GLASSES AND AN AIR OF ATTRACTIVE WHIMSICALITY. SHE SUDDENLY RATHER DISLIKED HIM, PROBABLY BECAUSE HE HAD NOT SUCCEEDED IN KISSING HER well she began are you still furious at me not at all she stepped forward and took his arm i'm sorry she said softly i don't know why i snapped out like that i'm in a bum humor tonight for some strange reason i'm sorry it's all right he mumbled don't mention it he felt disagreeably embarrassed was she rubbing in the fact of his late failure it was a mistake she continued on the same consciously gentle key we'll both forget it for this he hated her a few minutes later they drifted out on the floor while the dozen swaying sighing members of the specially hired jazz orchestra informed the crowded ballroom that if a saxophone and me are left alone why then two is company a man with a moustache cut in hello he began reprovingly you don't remember me i can't just think of your name she said lightly and i know you so well i met you up it his voice trailed disconsolately off as a man with very fair hair cut in edith murmured a conventional thanks loads cut in later to the inconnu the very fair man insisted on shaking hands enthusiastically she placed him as one of the numerous gems of her acquaintance last name a mystery she remembered even that he had a peculiar rhythm in dancing and found as they started that she was right going to be here long he breathed confidentially she leaned back and looked up at him couple of weeks where are you beltmore call me up some day i mean it he assured her i will we'll go to tea so do i do a dark man cut in with intense formality you don't remember me do you he said gravely i should say i do your name's harlan Nope. barlow well i knew there were two syllables anyway you're the boy that played the ukulele so well up at howard marshall's house-party i played but not a man with prominent teeth cut in edith inhaled a slight cloud of whisky she liked men to have had something to drink they were so much more cheerful and appreciative and complimentary much easier to talk to. My name's Dean, Philip Dean, he said cheerfully. You don't remember me, I know, but you used to come up to New Haven with a fellow I roomed with senior year, Gordon Sterrett." Edith looked up quickly. Yes, I went up with him twice, to the pump and slipper and the junior prom. You've seen him, of course, said Dean carelessly. He's here tonight. I saw him just a minute ago. Edith started, yet she had felt quite sure he would be here. I know i haven't a fat man with red hair cut in hello edith he began why hello there she slipped stumbled lightly i'm sorry dear she murmured mechanically she had seen gordon gordon very white and listless leaning against the side of a doorway smoking and looking into the ballroom edith could see that his face was thin and wan that the hand he raised to his lips with a cigarette was trembling they were dancing quite close to him now they invite so darn many extra fellows that you-the short man was saying hello gordon called edith over her partner's shoulder her heart was pounding wildly his large dark eyes were fixed on her he took a step in her direction her partner turned her away she heard his voice bleeding well half the stags get lit and leave before long so then a low tone at her side may i please she was dancing suddenly with gordon one of his arms was around her she felt it tighten spasmodically felt his hand on her back with the fingers spread her hand holding the little lace handkerchief was crushed in his why gordon she began breathlessly hello edith she slipped again was tossed forward by her recovery until her face touched the black cloth of his dinner coat she loved him she knew she loved him then for a minute there was silence while a strange feeling of uneasiness crept over her something was wrong of a sudden her heart wrenched and turned over as she realized what it was he was pitiful and wretched a little drunk and miserably tired oh she cried involuntarily his eyes looked down at her she saw suddenly that they were blood-streaked and rolling uncontrollably gordon she murmured we'll sit down i want to sit down they were nearly in mid-floor but she had seen two men start toward her from opposite sides of the room so she halted seized gordon's limp hand and led him bumping through the crowd her mouth tight shut her face a little pale under her rouge her eyes were trembling with tears she found a place high up on the soft carpeted stairs and he sat down heavily beside her well he began staring at her unsteadily i certainly am glad to see you edith she looked at him without answering the effect of this on her was immeasurable For years she had seen men in various stages of intoxication, from uncles all the way down to chauffeurs, and her feelings had varied from amusement to disgust, but here for the first time she was seized with a new feeling, an unutterable horror. "'Gordon,' she said accusingly, and almost crying, "'you look like the devil.' "'I've had trouble, Edith.' "'Trouble?' "'All sorts of trouble. Don't you say anything to the family, but I'm all gone to pieces. I'm a mess, Edith.' his lower lip was sagging he seemed scarcely to see her can't you can't you she hesitated can't you tell me about it gordon you know i'm always interested in you she bit her lip she had intended to say something stronger but found at the end that she couldn't bring it out gordon shook his head dully i can't tell you you're a good woman i can't tell a good woman the story right she said defiantly i think it's a perfect insult to call anyone a good woman in that way it's a slam you've been drinking gordon thanks he inclined his head gravely thanks for the information why do you drink because i'm so damn miserable do you think drinking's going to make it any better what are you doing trying to reform me no i'm trying to help you gordon can't you tell me about it i'm in an awful mess "'Best thing you can do is to pretend not to know me.' "'Why, Gordon?' "'I'm sorry I cut in on you. "'It's unfair to you. "'You're pure woman, and all that sort of thing. "'Here, I'll get someone else to dance with you.' He rose clumsily to his feet, but she reached up and pulled him down beside her on the stairs. "'Here, Gordon. "'You're ridiculous. "'You're hurting me. "'You're acting like a—like a crazy man.' "'I admit it. "'I'm a little crazy. "'Something's wrong with me, Edith.' "'There's something left me. "'It doesn't matter.' "'It does. "'Tell me. "'Just that I was always queer, "'a little bit different from other boys. "'All right in college, but now it's all wrong. "'Things have been snapping inside me for four months, "'like little hooks on a dress, "'and it's about to come off when a few more hooks go. "'I'm very gradually going loony.' "'He turned his eyes full on her and began to laugh, "'and she shrank away from him. "'What is the matter?' just me he repeated i'm going loony this whole place is like a dream to me this Delmonico's." as he talked she saw he had changed utterly he wasn't at all light and gay and careless a great lethargy and discouragement had come over him revulsion seized her followed by a faint surprising boredom his voice seemed to come out of a great void edith he said i used to think i was clever talented an artist now i know i'm nothing can't draw edith don't know why i'm telling you this she nodded absently i can't draw i can't do anything i'm poor as a church mouse he laughed bitterly and rather too loud i've become a damn beggar a leech on my friends i'm a failure i'm poor as hell her distaste was growing she barely nodded this time waiting for her first possible cue to rise suddenly gordon's eyes filled with tears edith he said turning to her with what was evidently a strong effort at self-control i can't tell you what it means to me to know there's one person left who's interested in me he reached out and patted her hand and involuntarily she drew it away it's mighty fine of you he repeated well she said slowly looking him in the eye any one's always glad to see an old friend "'But I am sorry to see you like this, Gordon.' There was a pause while they looked at each other, and the momentary eagerness in his eyes wavered. She rose and stood looking at him, her face quite expressionless. "'Shall we dance?' she suggested coolly. "'Love is fragile,' she was thinking, "'but perhaps the pieces are saved, the things that hovered on lips that might have been said. The new love words, the tenderness learned, are treasured up for the next lover.' End of section three, read by Don W. Jenkins, Rancho San Diego, California, shaggybark.blogspot.com.